I, I've personally come to the conclusion that our problem with planners isn't the planner, planners themselves. It's that we think we have to use them in a certain way. And, and that's where all the problems come is the fact that we're putting pressure on ourselves to think I buy a planner and it's only valuable if I use it in this certain way and I use it every single year and I don't pick it up and put it down and I certainly don't use planners like that I don't know about you hello and welcome to the women and ADHD podcast I am your host Katie Weber the following is a review from podcast slut on the apple podcast platform it's entitled well done This podcast is extremely well done and interesting. Give yourself a pat on the back. Having ADHD and putting out a regular podcast is not an easy feat. Why, thank you, my fellow podcast slut. You know, in a few short weeks, I will be celebrating my one-year anniversary of releasing interviews with other women with ADHD, and you're right, it is not an easy feat for someone with ADHD. I mean, a year in the life of an ADHD brain can feel like a lifetime. I think what keeps me going is honestly how much I have learned and am processing thanks to all of these conversations with brilliant women. I mean, they are so helpful and cathartic to me, and then I can't wait to share them with all of you. And I have so many more amazing conversations coming up in the next few weeks, like I I can't wait. Also, it totally blows me away that there are listeners out there who are also finding these conversations so helpful and cathartic. And together we're creating this community of women who are rising up from a lifetime of shame and confusion and loneliness. And we're finding strength and confidence in our unique way of being in this world. And that is just so fucking beautiful. It just makes me want to cry. So thank you, all of you, for letting me know how much you love these conversations and how much they have meant to you. And thank you for continuing to write reviews and sharing this podcast with others and getting the word out there for others to discover. You guys are amazing and brilliant. And together we are changing the face of ADHD and hopefully helping future generations of girls and women to see what a gift this truly can be. Okay, let's move on with episode 60 in which I interview Janet Murray. Janet is one of the UK's leading content marketing experts, and she's also a public speaker and host of the Courageous Content podcast. She's creator of the Courageous Content Desk Planner, and she runs an annual content planning event as well as an ongoing accountability group for business owners who struggle with planning their online content. Janet and I talk about entrepreneurship and other careers that seem to fit the ADHD brain. She is not only a former teacher, but she's also a former journalist. Also, Janet is, in her own words, one of the most disorganized people on the planet, which makes her one of the unlikeliest people in the world to launch a desk planner, but she did, and frankly, it is amazing. After this conversation, I was so taken with her and her method that I attended her Courageous Content Live event. I now have her gorgeous hardcover planner, and I've joined her accountability group. So yeah, consider yourself warned, Janet is absolutely charming and lovely, and I will stop rambling and simply let you find out for yourself. Enjoy. I feel like I know so much about your story because like I said, I did listen to your interview with Tracy Otsuka. When I was first diagnosed about a year ago, I binge listened to the first like 80 episodes of Tracy Otsuka's podcast. I was so grateful for that podcast. And I related so much to that interview you did with her. And I went back and listened to your kind of coming out episode 
which I saw that you just re-released. And release it today. I know. And and so (laughs) I was able to go back this morning and listen to your update because that was something I wanted to find out from you. You know, a year year in ADHD, in in ADHD life is basically like a decade in terms of thoughts and changes and development. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. um, Yeah. But first of all, I guess I'll ask you, you know, when were you diagnosed? Um, in the, it was during lockdown, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so when were you first diagnosed and what were some of the things that were happening in your life that really led you to seek out the ADHD diagnosis? So I was diagnosed last summer. So that would be, I think, summer 2020 during lockdown. But actually, I've been researching it and looking into it for a little while because somebody who I work with, someone who works for me, in fact, had said, I've just read this book about ADHD. I think I've got it and I think you've got it too. (laughs) And uh, I was a little bit offended, which I'll I'll come on to why in a sec, but I was a bit, what? Because before I do what I do now, I'm an entrepreneur now, but I was a journalist and then I was a teacher and I've worked with loads of kids with ADHD, the classic boy bouncing around the classroom. I didn't really know much about it. And I was a bit like, what? Like, why would you say that? But I went off and read this book that she recommended. And actually, I can't remember what book it was, but the first line is something like, you probably won't read all of this book because you've got ADHD, (laughs) which I didn't. But I read the first part of it and I thought, oh. So I I just started looking into it. And I certainly had always had this feeling throughout my life that I was different, that I didn't operate in the way that, that other people did. And a lot of it was around my kind of tenacious, tenaciousness and my drivenness and like I was a massive workaholic, whatever I was doing. And I couldn't understand why other people weren't driven in the same way, why they weren't like waking up in, in the middle of night thinking about work, why, why they didn't like holidays or like why they, like, why, why I didn't like holidays, I should say, why I struggled to switch off like why I found weekends hard why I found it hard to take time off why I just was driven all the time to be kind of working and and achieving I also had these question marks from childhood around why I was really really good at some stuff but really bad at other things so I was really good at English history music things that I was interested in and I mean like really good but terrible at things that I wasn't interested in I had this growing sense as I was a child that I was much cleverer than people gave me credit for and I don't know really where I got that from Um, but my report cards were right the way through school stopping the top marks for things that I liked and was good at and scraping the barrel um, at other other things so there was this kind of drivenness and this kind of like, I just felt like I couldn't switch off the whole time, like weekends, evenings. I was always thinking about projects. I was always like wanting to get back to my desk all the time. I found holidays really hard. Weekends, I can be in a terrible state because the time's not structured. I don't know what to do with myself. I feel guilty about not being productive all the time. Also struggling with day-to-day stuff. So like, how can I launch a really successful online business but not be able to pay a bill or not be able to um not be able to I don't remember somebody's birthday or or um remember to say thank you to somebody who sent me a present or uh, I was always getting late payments and so it's how could I be so 
high achieving and so productive in in some ways but then also so well just a bit of a mess in in, in other areas so the more I started to read about all of this stuff and start to to bring it all together and I started to research about ADHD and I started to think oh maybe that could be me does does that make sense oh absolutely and even the even the initial sense of feeling insulted I think I I relate to that (laughs) as well because I, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast, like my therapist was sort of gently suggesting for a few years to me that I should look into it. And there was that sort of sense of like, you know, when you don't, when you haven't looked into it, especially as a grown woman, you know, you have these misconceptions and you have, there is so much of that underlying stigma in terms of like, do you view me as a chaotic mess? Because I work really, really hard to seem like I'm together. (laughs) And not really putting it, not really putting together the pieces, which is like, no, the point is you are really together and you feel like a hot mess. <laughs> you know, it's almost like the reverse. Yeah. And I think there was a, another stage in life that it really started to come up is when I, I had my daughter. So my daughter's now, um, she just turned 16, but I'd always wanted to be a mum, and I was desperate to have children and had quite a lot of problems having children but then when my daughter turned up and she did turn up she was very premature so it was quite stressful but when she did turn up I was like oh so this is this is what it's like like why is it boring why does everybody else seem to be really enjoying this where I'm like at home feeling trapped in this mess of sterilizing bottles and making baby food and everybody else seems to be really happy everybody else seems to be really enjoying this lifestyle like are they all lying is it is is everybody having a great time and I'm not that was another another point for me as well and at the time I was like work was just it was my escape it was just like oh wow I can go off I was working as a freelance journalist at the time I can go off and just work in my office for a couple of hours that was like the best thing ever (laughs) And um, I think it was it was those times as well and realising that I, I wasn't like other women. I struggled to keep on top of all the different jobs in the house. And, and again, as I started to research and read all the books and uh, I started, that was quite common. Like other people seem to be able to keep on top of their laundry and keep their kids clean and put a healthy meal on the, the table every week or whatever, <laughs> and, uh, every day, I should say. And um, yeah, I just was, was, I felt like an alien. I felt really different to other people, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, bringing up your daughter, I remember you talked about that um, in your, I think it, maybe it was both the interview and your own episode um, about the, that feeling of like, feeling like you should have gratitude for being a mother. And, and yes, I mean, like, um, being a mother is a wonderful thing. I I'm grateful for it. I love my children. And yet at the same time, there really is this feeling of like, why can I not be present with my children? (laughs) Um, and now realizing, you know, being present is something that's really difficult for us. So, um, yeah, I really, really related to that feeling of like, why am I not enjoying this as much as I feel like I should be? Yeah. And, and play, playing with children, like uh, other people seem to enjoy playing with children. I'm like, I can only enjoy this if there's a purpose. So like baking or craft where there's an end goal. And I, I don't even like craft because I've got no patience with fiddly things. But 
like this playing on the floor with dolls and like there's no end goal there's no purpose to this so this is really hard and I had to really steal myself to say I am going to play for half an hour and you know I am going to try and be in the moment and not think about all the other things that I I could be doing but everybody else seemed to be finding it fine and getting on just fine with it. Now did things change for you in the pandemic where you felt like I really need to I really need to get this taken care of? I think it was um, the kind of, the sort of drivenness around my work and my business, I think. And I think that came more to the fore in the pandemic because there was more time to to work, if you like. So um, not being able to go out and mix with people, not being forced to, to do things and go to things in the same way suddenly weekends became even more difficult because the temptation just to sit and work and to try and achieve (laughs) became more and more and more there was no excuse not to do it and I was kind of thinking this this isn't healthy at all like I should be wanting to do things in the house or I should be wanting to wanting to create things or decorate the house or whatever but it was just like I was just driven and driven and driven and I, I, I wouldn't say that I became, I don't know, more anxious or I, I just, I just, maybe I even had more time to think about things because I had less time, more time to think and less time to talk to other people or be with other people. Um, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, maybe it was more of that time and space. I don't know. Yeah, for me, it was really this sense that I was like generating ideas on hyperdrive during the pandemic, I think, because there was so much downtime. And yet I didn't have the ability to follow through on anything because my kids were home and my husband was home. And so my space was invaded. And I always felt like I had to be kind of on call, especially with remote learning. Like it just felt like there was some some, you know, emergency with Zoom or Wi-Fi or something at all, you know, I had to be kind of always have one ear listening for one of my children. So I couldn't do anything. And so it was that, it was that pull between like having all these ideas and wanting to be productive. And yet also sort of feeling like I spent a lot of time just sitting, waiting (laughs) and not being able to start any projects. And that's when I sort of really felt like I was like, that's when I started to have the emotional breakdown, which was just like, God, I can't live like this. Um, and that's when I realized rage was a big part of ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the, the pandemic was, I remember being absolutely panicked by it because I, I thought that it would, I thought I would never be able to get used to it because for me, being able to go out and do what I want to do when I want to do it is a big thing. I actually adapted better than I thought but I remember being absolutely terrified and sending a friend a message saying I just don't know how I'm going to cope with not being able to go out and move and what if they say that we can't you know in some countries they were saying that you you know you couldn't even exercise outside of your house which that was just the worst thing ever so I started going out at five o'clock every day and I was either listening to that was when the our government briefing was on at five o'clock every every day which is probably the most depressive depressing thing in the world I was either listening to to the briefing from the government or I was listening to ADHD podcasts and, and sorting up on that um but it was um I I actually hesitated I, I it took me ages to work up the courage to get to to even approach a, a psychotherapist 
because also I kind of come from the kind of family. That's a whole interesting topic in itself, I think, is is about ADHD being classed as a mental health issue, whereas I'd personally always seen it as a neurodiversity. And because I hadn't suffered from any mental health issues myself, it was the two felt quite different. So this idea of of going to a psychotherapist like felt like a, a a big thing for me because it's something that I'd never done before. And then when I got in touch, finally, having done lots of research to get this appointment, they came back to me and said, okay, right, well, we need to speak to one of your parents. I was like, what? <laughs> You're 45 um, at this point, right? Yeah, we need to speak to somebody who you know was part of your life when you were growing up. And I was like, I can't do that. That will upset my parents. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot... But what I said in my reply probably prompted her to come back and say, we'll assess you anyway. So I said, well, the reason I can't (laughs) is because I have a sibling who, although not diagnosed, displays very, very hyperactive symptoms as a child. And I'm the good kid. Like, you know, we've got our hyperactive sibling who was in trouble or whatever but I'm the good kid like you know they're not going to get this at all like if, if if my sibling said that they were being assessed for ADHD they'd be totally on board with that but me no 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 so I I, I kind of but and I think you know when you say can I be assessed for ADHD and actually I have a sibling who you know from how I described it <laughs> undiagnosed but probably has it too um and um I kind of betrayed myself and gave myself away but I was terrified and I got my school reports I asked my mum for them but I didn't say what they were for because I just couldn't even go there because I knew it wouldn't be understood and it would worry worry them I just thought I can't do that so I almost backed out of the diagnosis because I I didn't want my parents to be involved in it (laughs) which at 45 is is quite um yeah, <laughs> being that worried at that age is, is probably quite silly. Mm, yeah, you know, I'm amazed at how many women I've interviewed who were the good kid, you know, who had a sibling that exhibited the more stereotypical symptoms and they were the good kid and how that kind of led to the anxiety, you know, of needing to be less um problematic or, you know, like not wanting to disrupt things and, you know, leads to so many of us have that people pleasing element to our personality. And to think about how the sort of comorbidities of people pleasing and anxiety just kind of foster and foster and foster throughout your life as you, you know, not only are you struggling, but then you can't even express that because, you don't have the words to articulate the ways in which you're struggling, but also you're not supposed to be the one who struggles. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think I spent most of my childhood, obviously not, not conscious of it at the time, but trying to achieve to get myself noticed in a way, because having a sibling who, like I say, hasn't been diagnosed, but uh, I would say, you know, is, is pretty, pretty dead, sir. Um, would, um, you know, they were very preoccupied with what he was doing and what he was getting up to, and quite rightly so, because there was usually something going on. But I think part of my overachieving was to do with, hey, look at me, look at me, I've I've got something to add, I, I'm valuable, I'm good, like I'm good at, I'm not good at everything, but I'm really, really good at some things. And I don't think that's probably a healthy pattern. And I think with a ADHD brain, you just take everything 
further than <laughs> further than the next person, if that makes sense. Oh my goodness, absolutely. I'm sort of dealing with that with my own children in terms of the way I notice that as parents, it's so it it's um it's so easy to fall into those like categorizations, right? Like you're the good one. You're the easy one. You're the one who gets straight A's. You're the one who messes up. And like, I see it through looking back in my own life, how problematic that was that my parents did that to my brothers and to me and how that kind of really shaped who my view of myself. Um, and as you know, as I was the poor student and I had a very similar sense to you, which was like, no, I realize I'm bright. I just can't show it in any meaningful way. And, and um, so, yeah, like it's, I really sort of as a parent now have to keep that in check a lot of the time of like placing these labels on my children and realizing how, what that does to you as you grow up. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens and it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one -on -one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womenandadhd.com slash coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With GoHenry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their GoHenry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. Uh, now it's interesting looking at your at your CV is is very ADHD, right? I mean you <laughs> I think they, I think when you look up like best jobs for, for people with ADHD, journalist and teacher both show up on that list. Um, and as a former journalist, it makes complete sense to me. I loved working in newspapers. I loved deadlines. Um, you know, the first time in my life that I ever really felt like I was excited about anything was when I joined the newspaper at university and I was just like so motivated and I just loved this room full of snarky, you know, underachieving bastards who chain smoked <laughs> and, you know, and drank copious amounts of coffee. And like, it was just, you know, they were my people. I just loved it so much. And I loved that pressure. And I let, I really 
thought it was interesting that you talked about how teaching, there were so many elements to teaching that weren't ADHD friendly, like the mundane tasks of having to remember and keep track of things. And, you know, it's, I, I get how teaching can be very, um, uh, pop, you know, a lot of people with ADHD end up teaching because you're on your feet and you have, you know, things change and you have these one-on-one per- interpersonal relationships, but I hadn't thought about all of the underlying stuff like marking grade, grading papers and, uh, rem- you know, the, the repetition. Mm. Yeah. So the things I loved about teaching were those things that you just mentioned there. So being on your feet, like the idea of having a job where you have to go and sit at the same desk for weeks on end like just doesn't doesn't appeal to me so I liked that and it was interesting work with teenagers they're quite challenging every day is different but I remember we used to have to fill out our teacher's planner every year which is quite ironic because I now have a planner and I sometimes think about that when I'm using it (laughs) but um and it used to fill me this with this sense of dread because I used to think oh I'm going to be in this classroom at the same time with this same group of kids for the rest of the year sometimes you might have a two-week timetable so there might be a little bit of variation but generally I'm going to be here with these kids maybe teaching them Macbeth instead of much ado about nothing or something but I'm going to be here doing this thing and that used to fill me with dread but the other thing that I found really hard and maybe my perception of it is worse than it is I was thinking about this whether I felt that my colleagues thought badly of me and maybe they didn't even, but I felt badly of myself because I could never get a set of books back in. So for me, the hardest thing was, so if you had 30 Macbeths and you give them out and the idea that like you'd be able to record all the numbers of the books because they were numbered in the right part of your register and then get it back off the child without losing it was just like the hardest thing in the world or you know, filling out the reg and I, I I remember getting a few eye rolls and a few raised eyebrows about my books it, it might well be that I I perceived myself as being worse than other people or being chased up because I'd lost paperwork I, I was maybe I was better than I thought I was but I certainly felt that 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 was where my inadequacy showed up like I was a good classroom teacher and I was very diligent but also I just had no I had no control over my workload which is kind of like I just couldn't teaching's hard you know and and you talk to any teacher and they'll say well you're busy all day and then you go home and you have to plan your lessons and mark books and it's hard but they didn't seem to be up to like two o'clock in the morning like I was hard or they didn't seem to be working every weekend like they seemed to be able to get it done in you know long hours but not not the same as me so yeah there were a few things about teaching generally I liked it but I was heading for burnout at a very young age which was why I decided to move over to journalism yeah because journalism won't burn you out (laughs) (laughs) well the thing I like about journalism or I, I liked or was was that you were generally working on one thing at a time so I say I say that, but you might be working on four stories at a time, but there would come that time where you would go, right, I'm going to, I've got to write this, the deadline's at this time, I've got to pull all of my notes together and I'm, I'm just focusing on this one thing and then I will, I will move on to the next few things. But there were always these points in the week where you just put your head down and you had to work to the deadline. And I was used, because I taught journalism as well, I, I was a journalism lecturer um, at a few universities in the UK. And um, I used to say to my students, if you were the kind of kid that got your homework done at the last minute, but did it well, like 
journalism you'll do well in journalism because you have to be able to hold your nerve that you can leave it to the last minute because the news the news doesn't kind of um conveniently happen <laughs> um at times that fit in with your deadlines like you have to be able to pull pull out the all the stops and, and produce a good piece of work even if you're not feeling creative or inspired or you know you just have to be able to do it and do a high quality piece of work right at the last minute and that did suit me and I liked the adrenaline and I also liked things like getting shouted at by <laughs> by MPs um by politicians or <laughs> like even like people putting the phone down on me or or like there was a certain amount of excitement and you know celebrities like managing to get an interview with a celebrity that you didn't think you'd ever be able to get or a politician or being being on the phone and somebody giving you that killer line you think oh my god or you know did they realize they just said that because that's just going to be such a great story there was a hell of a lot of um adrenaline in that I think and yeah I can see you're smiling <laughs> you know exactly what I mean but it's it's a high the high low high low high low I used to have a lot of neck pain, a lot of problems because I was like, oh, you know, I was conscious yeah. of my computer tense all the time, which I don't get now, even though I spend a lot of time at my computer. But I think it was because there were deadlines and deadlines. It was, I was often so close to the wire. That, Absolutely. And yeah. you would be holding in your, your bladder for the, for hours yeah. at end. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I actually, yeah. Um, I loved all of that. I actually sort of went from writing. I started out writing, reporting and writing and editing and, and moved into the design elements, page design and art direction. And again, it was the same of like putting together the front page and all the different puzzle pieces of layout that I ended up loving and doing more of and more of the copy editing, the headline writing and, and um, small copy because I felt like that was even less pressure than writing the article. <laughs> uh, but I loved working at small papers where you had to do everything, you know, where it was like all of these little bits and all of these different plates and there were, everything was coming together. And then finally, you know, deadline would hit at you know midnight and everything would go and it would go off and you would... You'd let out a big exhale, and then you could go home with a with a with a clean slate and start again in the morning. And one of the like most boring jobs I ever had was at the most prestigious newspaper I worked at because everybody did one job, and you had to do that one job really, really well. And you had to wait for everybody else to do their job before you could do your job. And it was just the most boring job ever. <laughs> I mean, it's the first thing I always talk about when I, cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I worked there, but uh, it was my least favorite job in terms of being a newspaper designer. Cause I loved, um, I loved all the small places where you had to do everything. So something that's come up for me recently, I've been thinking about this recently is I used to fill in for an editor at the guardian and I used to upset people big time. And I'm really like, um, um, I think I'm quite an affable person um, and quite a friendly person. But when I was editing on a newspaper, people, so sometimes they would be quite well-known people, but they'd send their copy in and then I'd say, thank you for that. I just need you to change X, Y, and Z. I don't quite get this bit. If you could just change that bit or whatever. And I used to say to myself, because these are often like Oxbridge educated, like a really intellectual men who, who were, maybe not used to being addressed so directly I now realized and um and I used to just I was very direct and used to say look this bit's great but I need you to change this this and this and I don't know if it was partly because I was like the supply teacher and they were playing me up or it was um 
because I suspected it was because I was a woman, but my regular editor was a woman. But, oh my God, my editor used to come back, she used to laugh and say like, how many columnists have we lost this time? <laughs> and I was just really direct. And I've only started to think about that in the last few years because I think I'm actually really quite a, an emotionally intelligent person. I think I'm, I am quite aware of other people. But for me, it was just so straightforward. Like I am in this job as the editor. My job is to give you feedback so we can get this to be the best possible article and get it get it on the page so in that context it seemed perfectly reasonable for me to um just say how it was and just kind of say this is what I need you to change could you change it oh but people used to get so upset and um, and now reflecting on it I do wonder whether it there was a kind of neurodivergency about it that I in that context I just couldn't I, I just I've spoken to people about it since um and people have since said I'm very direct in giving feedback but I I I I don't take offence to feedback if, if if the context is I'm working for somebody and you know my job is to give them the best piece of content or whatever I just take the feedback and I change it and that's always how I worked as a writer but I look back on that now and wonder whether I was very sort of neurodivergent about it and I didn't appreciate that other people I was very straightforward I am a writer I get feedback and I act on that feedback whether I agree with it or not or if I disagree with it I might you know I might talk about that but ultimately I know the editor is boss and I have to do what they say but um I don't know if if you, if you can identify that with, with that Katie but um it, I've only looked back at it now and like oh Maybe I was just being really neurodivergent. <laughs> I feel like we could do an entire episode on like the <laughs> etiquette of communication as a woman. Yeah, especially because I'm, you know, I'm the same way. I'm like, cut to the chase. I remember a theater teacher of mine in high school said something that I still remember to this day, where she said, if something is really, really good, you have a lot of feedback and a lot of places where it could be better. If something's not very good, you have nothing to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I always thought about that. Yeah. When it came to editing pieces, right. Where you would, you would only give the, the, the editing part and, um, and I would have to stop myself, but this was something I had to learn over time too, which was the same. I had the same issue, which was like, I just was very brusque. People always complained that I, um, you know, was, was, I didn't like, um, pander to kind of that sense of validation and, in my mind, I'm sure they just called me a bitch, but, uh, you know, the, the, I have to go back. I would always have to go back after I got all of the like criticism out of the way and kind of dumped that out. Then I would go back and start the email with like, here's what I loved. Great job on this, you know? And I would actually have to like artificially put that in, uh, as a sense of like, you know, warming them up for, for the criticism. Because I got that exact same feedback from people. And, and and I think it's the same even with emails now, right? Where you have to go back and you have to look and be like, how many, how many exclamation marks do I have? Do I have enough? Do I have too many? Do I sound crazy? You know, where, and I think that that's like a very female um, situation, which is that kind of need to be likable and need to not sound overbearing. I don't think men have that same you know, um, I don't think they self-edit in the same regard in terms of like how it's coming across. And, and then, and then mm. I think there's also just sort of the nuances of the written word, right? Where you, you have no idea. It sounds very, it sounds very lighthearted in my head, <laughs> but then when somebody's reading it, they're like, wow, you're really just, <laughs> you're just sort of uh, I used to have people say things like, um, well, I've done as much work on it as I can now. And so I've spent three hours on it. I can't spend any more. And I would say things like, 
well, I can't publish this just to be nice, which was absolutely, I can't publish it just to be nice because you spent three hours on it. It's got to be like, it's got to be of the, you know, in, in the right kind of shape for us to get it on the page. And and I realise now that, but in that kind of newspaper environment, when you're in deadline, you know, part of it is about you don't have time to to kind of give it, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but like a sort of shit, shit sandwich type thing. And But I'd be like, I, I can see through that. Like I can see through someone saying, well, this is lovely, but if you right. could just change this, this and this. So I'd just be like, you know, this person's a professional, they're a writer, they're a columnist. Like I, I, I would imagine that they, it wouldn't even occur to me that they would need to have it sugarcoated or whatever. Uh, but I realise now that that might have, I was just so black and white about it. I think that's what it, what I'm getting at is that it was this black and white thinking. And I used to often say that I thought that my, I think I was a really good editor. And I used to say, <laughs> I used to joke that because I wasn't as clever as some of these Oxford Don type people, I was able to see where it was just fluff, like where it was just fluff and bluster. And I could just see, and I'd be like, and I wasn't embarrassed to say, I don't understand what that means. I don't, I don't think I, our readers will understand that they say oh well it's the guardian and I was like well just because people read the guardian that doesn't mean that they have time to decode this very complex metaphor mm-hmm. um so <laughs> so uh, so yeah it was always the joke that I'd always lost half the half the column columnists and um and I think it was a little bit of being a woman but also just being very straight talking and just far too black and white on that particular issue I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and it's available for clients worldwide, so you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference Help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And now it seems like there's not a clear connection between being a journalist and being a making planners and and journals and diaries. But when you actually, it's quite a logical <laughs> chain of events, right? Yeah. So I, I kind of fell into entrepreneurship, and so basically, people would ask me like, "How do I get into the Guardian, or how do I get press coverage?" So. And I, and I was getting this really nice lucrative consultancy work where people were paying me to go and teach them how to get press coverage. And I thought, how can I get more of this? I know what I'll do. I'll start a, I'll start a blog. And then I started to think, okay, I've started this blog. How can I get more people to read it? So I started reading about that. And so I started learning about search engine optimization and email marketing and all this stuff. And then suddenly I was in this, oh, maybe I could make a business out of this. Maybe I could teach people about initially it was press and PR and marketing so I kind of fell into that but yeah so what happened was when I got into the entrepreneurial space people were really struggling with content and they were like I don't know what to post like I, I don't know or I was looking at people's content and thinking that's not very interesting like what why would you post that that's really boring and obviously I was learning about my own content and 
as a journalist, obviously, you have this innate sense of timing. So it's all about, my editor used to say to me, well, why would somebody need to hear about this now? Because as a journalist, you work from a calendar, and you'll know what I mean when I talk about on diary and off diary, I think. So on diary is events and things that are scheduled and coming up and you know about. So in the UK, that might be parliamentary debates or sort of key events or sort of key... Uh, select committee meetings or whatever um, in, in in the government. Um, but then off diary is obviously breaking news, things that happen. So I had this real sense that you should only be talking about something. Like, so we talked earlier, didn't we, about my ADHD episode on my own podcast and how it's gone out. I've republished it today because it's ADHD Awareness Month. So it's this sense of timing. But I could see all these other people struggling around me, like with, I don't know what to publish when. And I, and I don't, I, you know, I, and, and this just felt like the easiest thing in the world for me. So I was like, oh, okay. So in my usual sort of ADHD way, <laughs> I thought, wouldn't it be really cool if I created this um, content planner that had all um, like awareness days and key dates and like prompts that would help people come up with content. So I got my designer to mock up a picture of what it would look like. And then I just sent an email to my email list and said, like, do you want to buy this? Uh, if you buy it now, you'll get it for, I think it was 1950, the first one. Um, but if you um, hang on until later, you'll, you'll, you'll pay more. And it was literally was just a test. It was like a, a very simple page that I created. Enough people bought it for me to validate the idea. And I thought, okay, that that's good. So we made it. And I think the first time I did it, I had the idea in November and we made it in November. And since then, so that was five years ago, I think it was, we, we've got a bit more sophisticated, but basically this planner that I created on the back of an envelope on a whim and just sold just to see what would happen <laughs> has become like the, the kind of pivotal, pivotal part of my business. So I now have this planner that I that I sell um, I have a, a content planning event that we do every year and I have a content planning membership as well and the irony being is like I'm the worst planner in the world like <laughs> like I'm very consistent uh, and I've had I had a podcast I've got a podcast now I had one that went for 450 episodes over four years and over a million downloads and very consistent but I'm not the best planner in the world so I regularly laugh at myself the fact that I've now got this whole business this multi six-figure business <laughs> around a planner when I'm like the world's worst planner basically well I think it's I think it's really understanding what structures you need right I mean I think I am the I forget I forget my children exist when they're not home so I have a reminder that says go pick up your kids you know like I so I have to be I have reminders that pop up on my phone all day long for the simplest tasks because I know that I will forget them right and so I don't forget them because I have these reminders so then am I a forgetful person or am I not a forgetful person because I've set up a structure that works for me so that I'm reminded constantly throughout the day. If I didn't have those, I wouldn't do any of those things. And so it's sort of, again, it's like, you've sounds like you've set up this content creation planner, which is, does everything that you wouldn't normally think to do yourself. It's already sort of set up for you in a structure that works. Well, I think it, it works for somebody who, who finds planning hard, which is how I came up with it. So I, I have this thing called overhead planning, which, which is a strange term, but anyway, um, I think what a lot of people do with content planning or any kind of planning is they do it in a very linear way. So they're like, okay, so I'm going to plan some content. I'm going to start on Monday and then I'm going to do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then say they start in January. By the second week of January, they're like, oh, I'm all done with content. 
planning like this is awful you know because it just feels too much so I I have always been able to look at the bigger picture so I would look at my content planning I would never start with what am I doing tomorrow or next week I'd start with like next year (laughs) so for example we're recording this in October 2021 I already know that next year I'm going to be launching my planner again uh, in August Uh, 2022 I'm going to run an event in November so I would start there so I'd start like next year and I'd be like I divide my year into quarters and I just start by just putting a few things okay so I know that that plan is going to launch in August and then in November I've got my event and then I've got this happening so that for me feels a lot less overwhelming because you're just starting by looking across your year writing down a couple of things that are happening and then because this planner that I've created is all based around this content planning system and then looking at it in quarters and just like breaking it down and saying okay right, what's going to be happening over the next few months and putting like big picture ideas in there instead of the detail because I really struggle with detail so I'm great at coming up with and the thing about this when you run a business and my clients for my planner they're all business owners is that that's how you sell more stuff like if you can look next year if I'm already thinking well I've got I'm launching my planner next August so that means that I need to book in um, to get the branding done in next February and it means I need to do a podcast episode on this you know in eight weeks time or whatever um I can totally my brain can totally do that because it's not overwhelming because it's not details it's just big, big picture thinking so then it's about breaking it down from quarters and then every month I just sit down and look across the month and, and go okay right what what aware you know what awareness days are going on it's ADHD month maybe I'll put that podcast episode out again and you know are there any sort of like fun days I can create content around so for me it's about just taking I always say it's like a videographer so you take a like a white I'm actually doing it with my hands now but you take like a wide shot of the year and then you gradually get closer and closer and I think if you're somebody who struggles with detail as I do that feels a lot less overwhelming so I think I almost without meaning to created the planner that I wished somebody would create for me that started big and wasn't about the detail if that makes sense yeah I mean I think for me with my coaching um online content, the biggest issue for me is remembering to post. And then once I remember to post, you know, thinking, okay, what, what, do I, what do I even have to say? I mean, I always have a million things to say. It's just a matter of like, what's the, the, the one thing I'm going to focus on today. And so, yeah, I mean, what I want is somebody to tell me today's, you know, <laughs> Monday, you post this Tuesday, you yeah. post this, right. And then even yeah, better yeah. have someone else to post it for me. <laughs> Uh, but it's the same, like, it's that same idea of like, yeah, you, you, um, I think so many small businesses run into that, uh, with social media, which is just the, the mundanity of, of mundanity. That sounds weird. Anyway, the, how <laughs> mundane it is to post over and, oh, you know, the, the fact that people need to see messages over and over and over again, I create a thing. I post about it once. And then I, I don't understand why nobody comes flocking to the thing. <laughs> Uh, it's, you know, where I'm like, do I really have to post about this every day? Do I really like, is that really what it's come down to? We just need to be hit over the head over and over and over again. And as a consumer, the answer is yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, the other thing was that everybody was always saying to me, I just wish somebody could tell me what to post, like when, so like exactly what you were saying there. But the problem with that is that obviously we have to create content that's for art, like working on newspaper. Like if you work in a newspaper, you have to create content for the audience of that newspaper and what they're interested in. And if you create content that you're only interested in or that 
would be better suited to another audience it's not going to land so unfortunately what, what what most people want is they want templates they want you to kind of just say hey just post this and here you go but actually then an ADHD brain would get really bored with that anyway but so I've been working probably up to the last five years to make this planner better and better and I, I kept mulling that over in my head the whole time it's like so people want me to tell them what to post, where and when. I can't do that because that's not going to help them get sales and they're, they're, they're going to get it off their to-do list, but they're not going to get sales. And then I came up with this thing this year, um, which I call the four by four strategy, which is just basically, I kind of came to the conclusion by working with so many people that most people post too much anyway. And like, if all of us just showed up four days a week and posted something like four days out of seven that's and we did it consistently you know with the odd week off, you know or sometimes I have times where I don't want to post then that will be a lot better than what a lot of people are do is I call it yo-yo content creation it's like yo-yo dieting where you like start on a Monday and then by Wednesday you're totally cheesed off so I came up with these like this four by four strategy four stars of content four days a week it's really easy to remember that's what I was thinking as well how could I share something with somebody that's like really easy to remember four stars of content four days a week and my planner has evolved and that's really what it's about but it comes from that whole thing about just wanting to make it easier and just to break it down smaller and smaller and I'm I think I picked this up when I was a teacher as well about most of us need frameworks or templates or we not not templates to copy but almost like I call them like your bicycle stabilizers kind of thing but if you can give somebody like a template to follow the first few times they do it you know I've got these four stars of content but people might decide that actually they only want to do one of them and that's fine but showing up and doing that because you know how to do that is better than um not showing up at all and there were lots of other things that inspired me this is what my where the crazy places that my brain goes but I was thinking about um you know those water bottles that you can buy where it tells you how much water you drink over the day Mm -hmm. and and so and I was thinking, how could I, how could I turn that into content plan to help with content planning? So this year in, in our, in, in the planner, we've actually got little bits that you can tick off just, you know, so that you've done your four days for accountability. So you can say, oh, you know, I've, I can color in the little circles and tick them off and say, like, I've done my four, four days this week. Um, actually I've done five. So like brownie points for me. Um, and so, yeah, this, it, it's already evolved this planner and I kind of laugh and say that I'm, like the worst person in the world to start a planner because I'm really disorganized and struggle with detail but in a way what's evolved is is something that does work for people who struggle with detail because you could literally with you know four stars of content four days a week you could open up your planner and just post spontaneously every day that's it's not it's not like if that works for you if that kind of makes sense so so I think there is method in the madness of me having a planner I think (laughs) Oh no, absolutely. It, it, I, I love it. I'm, I'm sold. Uh, <laughs> but now it, on a more broad spectrum in terms of, you know, if you're not a content creator, if you're just sort of uh, a mom and a partner and a woman trying to get through your day, uh, you know, why do we have, why do we continually collect calendars and planners <laughs> And can't seem to ever feel organized. I mean, I feel like there's that sense of needing to be organized is something that eludes us. I think just because of the level of chaos in our brains, I think if we're just never going to feel settled the way that like you said, you know, like we're never going to feel relaxed on vacation. We're never going to feel relaxed on the weekends. It's just a certain like base level of chaos that we kind of have to 
live with and forgive. But I, I'm curious what when you talk about the love hate relationship with planners, <laughs> why what's what's falling apart there? Well, this is really interesting. Selling a planner has been really interesting for me because I think our problem with planners isn't the planners. It's our it's us thinking that to get value out of a planner, we have to write in it or use it every day. And actually, I've created a lot of content about this. Um, so objection content for selling my planner is actually, I I sell this planner, the funny thing, I don't really write in mine that much, but I do use it. But to get value out of a planner or some kind of planning tool, where did we get the idea that we have to use it every single day and we have to, I think it's like everything that we buy, we think we it's only valuable to us. So I, I, I find myself saying to clients a lot, like, I've got clients who never write a thing in this planner. I've got some that write in every single bit, you know, but why does everybody want to be that person who writes in every single bit? Because we're not all like that. Some people just use it as a reference. They look up these awareness days. Some people, they might use it to plan out a project in it. You know, there might be, but if they get value from that bit, and I, I, I've personally come to the conclusion that our problem with planners isn't the planner, planners themselves. It's that we think we have to use them in a certain way. And, I, and that's where all the problems come is the fact that we're putting pressure on ourselves to think I buy a planner and it's only valuable if I use it in this certain way and I use it every single year and mm -hmm. I don't pick it up and put it down and I certainly don't use planners like that I don't know about you no I mean this is something I feel like this is a theme I come back to a lot in my interviews which is like you know we value consistency in such a way because we were told our entire lives that we were inconsistent and that we needed to be more consistent you know um, from school to jobs you know and there are some a lot of hidden costs in inconsistency. We tend to have lower salaries because we don't keep jobs as long. Or, you know, if you're constantly paying money for these things that you only use for a month or two, you feel like that's money down the drain, right? And so there, you know, there are ways in which we feel like there are these sort of financial taxes on, on who we are as with ADHD. But I think at the same time, like, yeah, I think there's value in that's being placed in consistency is misguided because I think we don't place enough value in using what works, right? And yeah, so this planner worked for you for this project or, you know, this amount of time and you needed to move on. That's great. You're learning more, you know, this is yeah, information yeah. Uh, that this, yeah. you, you shouldn't have to be the person who is consistent all the time. Yeah. But what, and somehow we feel like there's like, we're, we're um, faulty for, for not being consistent because we've been yeah. told that our whole lives. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, I help people with things like, um, so starting podcasts or whatever, and and so like, who says that you have to have a podcast and you launch it and then you have to have it forever? Like, what's wrong with just doing six or eight episodes or or doing a blog for six blog and then having a break or whatever? Like, who's to say that the right way to do it is to do it forever and a day? Like, who's to say that you couldn't say, you know, I find social media hard, so I'm just going to really go for it one week a month and then I'm going to chill out for the rest of the month and come back to it if you can find a way that I, I think it's about finding a way I think the trouble is we're, we're always trying to fit ourselves into other people's way of doing it and for me the things that work the best are the most simple things so for example I worked out accidentally quite a few years ago that um, I need uninterrupted blocks of time to get things done. I mean, don't we all? So I stopped having meetings in the morning and it makes me sound like a real princess or a real like uh, prima donna. Like I don't take meetings in the morning, but I don't. So before 12 o'clock, unless it's really, really important, I don't have any meetings. And everyone knows in my team, everyone, it, my clients know that I don't do meetings because if, I, if I'm on and off Zoom, on and off, on and off, 
all day meetings like I just a normal person can't get so say a normal person but some of the normal brain can't get things done so I think it's about um it's about being a bit kinder to ourselves and and finding those simple things that work and yeah you know, I've sometimes said to clients you know so they'll say well I did learn this one thing from getting your planner and actually I do that thing all the time so well you know just because you didn't write in every page it's still been useful it's still been a valuable resource for you so I think part of it is the pressure that we put on ourselves to think that there's only one good good way like I think I'm a really strategic person because I don't plan in a linear way because I can look so much further ahead than other people and that's better than being somebody who shows up and sort of doggedly does each week I also come across people who they do they're really consistent but their content isn't very good and I think well (laughs) I'd rather have um some of the ADHD people make me laugh you know like Camden ADHD and and I think you did you have her on Mm -hmm. your podcast um and they're often really quite inconsistent you'll see loads of them for ages and then they'll go quiet for a bit or but their content's great and that's the bit that matters and I some I also think it's okay to with whatever it is in life or business to 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 do that like if it works for you to be spontaneous and you can be spontaneous consistently <laughs> you know that's that's the bit if that kind of makes sense oh absolutely and I loved what you said in your when you're the re-release of your episode about your own diagnosis and your ADHD looking back what has changed for you the most since your diagnosis is that self-acceptance and that that sense of like no longer apologizing for the way you do things but really kind of um you know, not trying to change yourself for other people, but really finding the superpower in, I, even though mm-hmm. I hate that word sometimes, but, like, <laughs> you know, finding, you know, really leaning in to what your strengths are and being able to kind of change that inner narrative. Because for me, that's absolutely been the biggest change for me, which is like, yeah, we spent our whole lives being told the way we do things is wrong. So I get it. We really, really have some terrible self-esteem. <laughs> But, you know, the biggest change for me is to realize like what I am bringing to the table and to, yeah, not apologize for who I am um, and and to see the value in how I have been doing things. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I loved I loved the way you articulate it much better than I am articulating it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I sh- well I shared in this this podcast episode which was an update of the episode that I did about my ADHD diagnosis that like with my team I often used to feel like I I was almost like apologizing I was giving people work like and apologizing for well you know if you work with me I'm not the most organized person in the world and like don't expect me to have my my content plan done you know and in the end I was like well actually there are other entrepreneurs <laughs> that people could work for and if you're the kind of person that it really winds you up if somebody is a little bit more chaotic than the next person there are other people that people can work with and and I've like for example I've come to the point where I have my ops person who just tells me what I need to do because we we use Asana we use this tool called Asana to help keep us organized <laughs> and I just I find it overwhelming because there's too many tasks so I just get her to tell me what I need to do <laughs> And I feel a bit guilty, like I'm making everybody else use this tool, but actually it's my business and this is, you know, this works for me. I shouldn't be feeling guilty about that or thinking, well, if I'm making everybody else use Asana, then I should do it. I think that's part of the kind of cycle you can get into, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, another entire episode could be dedicated to apologies <laughs> and <laughs> and how much. 
much we apologize for simply existing. It drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's another thing I kind of have to go through with my emails too. Like, am I apologizing for something that I really should be apologizing for? Or am I just apologizing for existing? And I have to go through mm. and edit that out. Cause my, you know, I feel like our tendency is to be like, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. And it's like, that used to bother me so much with coworkers who would start an email with, I'm sorry to bother you. And I'm like, we work together. Your job <laughs> is to bother me. <laughs> um, mm. Well, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a, an avid listener. So um, it's, it's always nice to, to be interviewed for a podcast that you listen to. So that's really nice. <laughs> and there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.